introduction to our passage in Matthew 13, and so we're not so much going to actually get into the text, we are a little bit, first couple verses, but we've got to lay a lot of groundwork for us to understand what we're going to encounter in chapter 13 of Matthew. We've been going through the Gospel of Matthew now for, I don't know, 115 messages, whatever that is, but um, it never uh, stops to uh, cause me to wonder how incredible God's Word is, amen? Every time you turn the page, there's something brand new, and you think you got it figured out, and then it hits you right in the face, and you, huh, you got to start all over. Well, as you take your Bible and you turn with me to Matthew chapter 13, I just want to read for several sections here of the, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 13 so we can kind of get a context for what we'll be looking at. So follow along in your Bibles as we read Matthew 13, beginning in verse 1. On the same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea, and great multitudes were gathered together to him, so that he got into a boat and he sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, sowed some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? He answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. For whoever has, to him more will be given. And he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive, and the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly, I say to you, that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not Hear it. One thing that we're going to stop there. One thing that we have to understand is when we, be, we come to this chapter in the Gospel of Matthew, it marks kind of a brand new division. It marks a brand new section of this Gospel. The Gospel of Matthew was basically written by Matthew to present Christ as what? King. Okay, 
And we've been looking at that through our studies in the Gospel of Matthew. It's to present Jesus Christ as the King, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Chosen One, the one who has the right to David's throne. And just quickly in chapter 1, we saw that he was included in the, uh, through the Messianic line as the son of David. Chapter 2, it showed us that in Matthew that the, the, the Magi and the wise men came, led by the Spirit of God, to directly to him, and they confirmed his kingship. Chapter 3, we saw the testimony of John the Baptist, and he was the forerunner of the Messiah, and he testified that Christ was king. In chapter 4, we saw the king again, once again. He testified himself of his kingship by defeating Satan. You remember that? He conquered the kingdoms of darkness. Only God's king could overcome Satan. Um, he, we see Matthew affirming the kingship of Christ in a positive way in, verses, in chapters 1 through 3, and then kind of in a negative way in chapter 4 as he's in this conflict with Satan. He speaks with authority in chapters 5, 6, and 7 because he's given us everything we need to believe that he is the king. And you have the principles of the kingdom, and we've studied through those, chapters 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. And then in chapters 8 through 10, you find three chapters that basically point out to us the credentials of the king. We see there are miracles, and there's chapters full of miracles there, 8, 9, and 10. And again, once again, he proves himself to be who he said he was, the king, with his supernatural power. And it's interesting because if you look at what Christ is doing, he's amping up his credentials. With each chapter, up to this point, you turn and you see more evidence that Christ is who he said he is. But the interesting thing is running right alongside of that affirmation of his kingship, there is a group of people who are basically mounting a rejection against him. And it seems like the more evidence he gives, the harder the rejection falls. It's different. The greater the evidence that he is king, the greater the rejection. Chapter 11, Jesus denounces the sinful nation of Israel for rejecting him. And he promises them severe judgment, which happened in 70 A.D., And he closes, this is just the grace we sang this morning, your grace is enough. This is just the grace of God that we see in Scripture. Even though Jesus just proclaimed judgment in chapter 11 on the nation of Israel, he closes that verse with a what? With an invitation. He says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Because these people were so burdened down by the Pharisees' rules and regulations, and they had taken the law of God... And they turned it into something that it was never meant to be. Just to uphold their own religious, pharisaical order. So out of the message of judgment in chapter 11, we see once again an invitation of grace. But then in chapter 12, when we went through chapter 12, we saw the rejection of the enemies of Christ reach its climax. To the point where they pointed at Christ and they said, you know what, we can't argue. We see supernatural power coming out of you. We hear somebody who teaches like we've never heard before. Ever. But you know what? We don't believe you're doing it by God's power. We believe you're doing it by Satan's power. Ultimate rejection. Their final rejection. 
They accused Jesus of being satanic. And Christ goes through chapter 12 and lays out his argument why that could never be. And he finally pronounces judgment on them and says that, you know what, you've committed a sin that is beyond forgiveness. When you point to the Messiah, the Son of God, and you have all the evidence that you have before you, and you look at that and you say, no, I I don't believe you're from God, I believe you're from Satan. There's no hope for you. There's no hope outside of Christ for forgiveness. They've rejected the one and only person who can forgive them, the Lord Jesus Christ. They not only rejected him, they made him satanic in their minds. But even after that severe judgment, at the very last verse, look at what it says in chapter 12. Once again, the grace of God, it just flows through Scripture. He says, for whoever, whoever. Once again, he's reaching his hand out to these people. And he's saying, whoever, no condition. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. He closes the chapter 12 with an invitation. What is the will of the Father in heaven? We looked at this last week very clearly. The Bible says that the Father said, This is my beloved Son, hear Him. The will of the Father in heaven is that you hear what Jesus Christ has to say. And whoever recognized Jesus Christ as the Son of God and as Lord, and whoever heard His message would come into an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. It wouldn't just be a religion anymore. You're talking about a relationship at this point. And so Christ has proven to be the King, and the people rejected Him as their King. And He pronounced judgment on them. And yet He still offers this gracious invitation that whoever will believe, and that's the Gospel, So you approach chapter 13, and the mold is set. The die is cast. Israel has rejected the Messiah. Israel has rejected the king. And because they've rejected the king, therefore they've rejected what? The kingdom. You can't have one without the other. You can't separate the king from the kingdom. For centuries, think about it. They've waited for their Messiah. For centuries, they waited for the establishment of God's kingdom on earth, as the prophets foretold. They waited for those times of refreshing. They waited for those times of restoration, granting back the glory to the nation of Israel. All that was there before the fall of man, they waited for that to be restored. And it seems when it was offered to them, they refused it, and they rejected it, and they lost it yet for another generation. And so as you approach chapter 13, you enter, as I said before, kind of a new section here, a new train of thought, a new perspective on Jesus' ministry. And it's very important that we lay this groundwork. For me, just to jump into the parable of the soils would be irresponsible. Because you wouldn't get it. You have to understand what what is established here in the context. One commentator in his commentary on Matthew says this, not seeing that, 
not seeing the Messiahship of Jesus in his words and his works, they, the enemies of Christ, have separated the fruit from the tree. In other words, it's not that they denied his miracles. They admitted that. You couldn't. It's not that they denied even his power. They didn't deny the fact that they were fascinated with his words. It's that they never followed that fruit that they saw to the logical conclusion. They separated it from the reality of who Christ actually was. And when we come into this chapter 13, we see the shadow of the cross kind of looming in the background. Even in, in chapter 12, verse 14, they, thought, they sought to destroy him. They sought to kill him. They reached the point where they wanted only to kill him. They didn't want to have anything to do with him anymore. They rejected the king, and they have rejected his kingdom. Now, the question you're probably going to ask is this. If Jesus came to offer the kingdom, if Jesus came to bring his kingdom to earth, to rule and to reign, to establish that which was promised in the Old Testament, and they refused it, they refused the king, and they also refused the kingdom, what happens to the kingdom? What happens now? What's Christ to do? And that's exactly the question that's answered in Matthew 13. It tells us what's going to happen. Because, you see, the kingdom cannot come at this point in time. The kingdom can't come until the nation of Israel receives her king. And at this point in time, they weren't ready to do it. So the kingdom couldn't come to earth. At this point, the kingdom had to be postponed in terms of its full fulfillment in Scripture. They rejected the king, and the king and its full fulfillment had to be postponed. To when? Well, a future time. A future time. When is that future time? It's the second coming of Christ. That's when God's kingdom will be established here on earth, right? That's why Christ is coming a second time, to bring the kingdom that was refused the first time. See, he came, and he came with his message, and his message was what in the Gospels? What was his message? Repent for what? The kingdom of God is at hand. If you only believe, you can have it. But you have to believe in the king to get the kingdom. The message of John the Baptist was the same. Christ's forerunner. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The message of the apostles, the disciples, was the same. Chapter 10, verse 7, the same thing. They were preaching the kingdom. They were preaching the kingdom over and over and over again. And the people said no to the king and no to the kingdom. And so therefore the kingdom had to be postponed. Now, you might ask, well, why didn't God just say, okay, you know what, pal? Folks, I brought the king to you and the kingdom, and you rejected it. That's it. I'm taking my kingdom, and I'm going back to heaven, and you're never going to see it. Why wouldn't he do that? That's what we would do, <laughs> right? He can't do that because he made a promise, right? He made a promise in Scripture. He made a promise to the nation of Israel, 
And you know what? If there's anything that God does, He keeps His promises, beloved. That's why He's coming back and will again offer the kingdom. And when He offers it the second time at His second coming, the Bible tells us that it will be received at that time. God made a promise that He would bring a kingdom to Israel. And though that nation, through that nation, His kingdom would reach out to all the world. And he's going to keep that promise. That's why there's still Jews living on the earth right now. If it was up to Hitler, they'd all be gone. If it was up to some world leaders, they'd be gone. That's why they're regathered in their land today. You, do you ever wonder why you, when you read the paper, constantly Israel's all over the map? It's all over the place. It's all in text of the, of the paper. You can't turn to a page in the newspaper, in the news, without reading about the nation of Israel. This little tiny plot of land, and yet it's such a big deal. That in and of itself should speak of the Bible's veracity when it speaks to prophecy and things like that. When Israel established their nation, and they got their land back, why do you think they're always being fought to give it up, give it up, give it up? That's the enemy. Because if he could give, get them to give up their land for them not to have a land, what would that prove? That would prove the Bible to be false. Because if God promised they will have a land. His prophecies would not come to pass and his word would be violated. God is not a God that would allow that to happen because we serve a true God. So it's postponed. It's not canceled, it's postponed. In Zechariah 12.10, you can turn over there, just, follow, just hear me as I read it for you. Zechariah 12.10 says, The day is coming when they will look on him whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as an only son. And at the moment of a, a fountain of salvation will be opened up to the line of Israel and the nation will all be regenerated. What's that say? That says that they will be redeemed. One day Israel will be redeemed by God's gracious hand. There's coming a day when they will look on the one whom they've pierced, they crucified. And they will be saved by that Messiah, by that Savior. That's what Paul says. All Israel will be saved. We know that time is coming during the great tribulation. The end times. It says in Revelation 7 that there's going to be so many Gentiles saved that it's going to be unable to even count them. Can you imagine that? There's going to be an incredible host of people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation on the globe. They're going to be saved, gloriously saved. And you're going to have the nation of Israel finally receive their Messiah, and they're going to be redeemed. You have worldwide Gentile salvation, and when the kingdom of God comes into the hearts, listen to this, of men internally, then it will realize its full fulfillment externally as Christ reigns on earth for a thousand years during the millennium spoken of in Revelation 20. So when we talk about the full fulfillment of the kingdom, it kind of sounds redundant, 
but we mean that the kingdom will come to pass on the earth both internally in the hearts of those who follow Christ, in the hearts of those who believe in him, and also externally as Christ rules and reigns physically here on earth. That's what would have happened the first time when he came, if they would have received him. If they would have received the king, they would have received the kingdom, and Christ would have established his kingdom on earth the first time he came, but they didn't. They didn't believe. There's always a remnant that believes. That's throughout the Bible. You always see a remnant of people that believe, but one day there's going to be a massive response that's just going to be incredible. And then Christ is going to be in the hearts of people internally, and therefore he will rule and reign on earth externally for a thousand years. Well, my question is, what happens between now and then? Right? We have Christ who came. They rejected him. Now we've got to wait who knows how long until he comes again, and he rules and reigns for a thousand years. But what happens in between? What happens in between that time? See, this is the period of time that we're going to look at. This is the period of time theologians call the parenthesis. <laughs> they call it the interim. Some call it the interregnum. But it's a period that's not seen clearly in the Old Testament. It's a mystery. You're going to see that word over and over. A mystery is simply, simply something that was hidden from time past. They didn't see it in their period of time. That's why it was so hard for them when Christ came the first time, when he wasn't politically establishing a kingdom physically on earth, they scratched their heads and said, what's going on? They didn't understand it. But it's the period that's not seen in the Old Testament. And so Jesus calls it a mystery. That which is hidden from time past. That's why you have chapter 13. Chapter 13 is here for us because they didn't have any teaching on what it would be like in between those two times. They had no idea. And so here in chapter 13, you have a series of eight parables from verse 1 down to verse 52. And in those parables, here's what we're going to see. Jesus describes this interim period, this mysterious period. He describes that parenthesis in which we live, even now. We're in that period today. Christ hasn't come back yet. But he's already left, so we're in this in-between time. And that's what makes it so interesting when we get into this chapter. Because these things directly relate to us. These stories, these parables that he's going to share with us directly relate to us who are here. With Christ in our hearts during the church age. He's talking about our time. He's talking about our period what it will be like when the king has been rejected and the kingdom was postponed until he comes again to set up his kingdom. It describes Christianity in 2010. That's why it's so relevant. And the Lord said it would be this way. And each of these parables kind of uncovers 
another layer, another facet of this period. And so we're going to take time to work our way through this. And we call this the mysterious form of the kingdom. The mysterious form. Mystery simply means something that was hidden, which is now revealed. It's a biblical use of the term. We're going to look into that more next week. But this was something they weren't familiar with. This is something they didn't understand fully. They only saw the Messiah coming and setting up his kingdom. They didn't understand this interim period of time. There's a couple little hints here and there, but nothing that would clearly show them this is going to happen. So when the kingdom goes on during this time, during this period of time, it doesn't mean that God's kingdom ends. It continues. But it continues with the king being absent. (laughs) The king is absent today, is he not? Jesus at this point is where? He's in heaven. The Bible says his glorified body is where? It's at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. Now obviously, he's present in our lives. We understand that. His glorified body in his glorified state, he's in heaven awaiting time to return to earth. So there's kind of a, a time, a period of time here right now where the kingdom is continuing, but it's, you have the king in absentia. He's not here. And you say, well, how could that happen? Well, even in the Old Testament, you see times where David wasn't physically ruling his kingdom. He's being chased through the wilderness, right, by his enemies. But did that make him any less the king? No, he was still the king. And so we see that time and time again. So Christ, in that sense, is the king who is in heaven. He's not here physically with us. And the chapter then describes this period of time when the Lord Jesus Christ is ruling on earth, though he himself is personally in his glorified state, his glorified being is absent. Now, to help you understand this fully before we jump into all these parables, we need to understand what we're talking about when we talk about the kingdom. I want you to understand the concept of the kingdom. It's a very, very, very large uh, theological topic to get your arms around. So we're just going to scrap or scrape the surface tonight this morning. Scratch the surface. What am I saying? Scratch the surface. So there's two basic aspects of God's kingdom. And this is what you're going to have to understand to understand all these parables we're going to be looking at in the coming weeks. First of all, there's God's universal kingdom. There's a little illustration there, I think, in your, in your outline of it. But there's God's universal kingdom. This is very easy to understand. God's universal kingdom basically means that God rules over everything and everyone forever. He rules everything and everyone forever. From eternity past to eternity future, that's God's universal kingdom. The Bible speaks that our God is sovereign, that he's the creator, he's the sustainer, he's the beginning and the end of all things, he dominates all things, he rules over everything and everyone forever. Psalm 29.10 is an example of that. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king. How long? It says forever. 
He's eternally the king. There's no time when he was not the king, and there will be no time in the future when he will not be the king. He's the king forever. Psalm 103.19 says this, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. That's God's universal kingdom. He's not only the king forever, but he's the king over everything forever. You might say, well, what about here on earth? I mean, you know, is he the king over the devil? Yes, he's the king over the devil. You say, what about demons? He's the king over demons. He's shown that to us in the Gospel of Matthew. What about unbeliever? Yep, he's the king over them too. That's why he has the power as the king to throw them into a place called hell one day. Unless they repent and come to the Savior. That's why the Bible says, fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Christ is even the king of hell. See, we have a warped idea when we think of hell. You ask a lot of Christians, who's in charge of hell? You know what their answer will be? Satan. They'll say the devil's in charge of hell. No, he's not. He is not in charge of hell. He's being punished like everybody else is being punished. God is in charge of hell. He's the king of hell. God runs hell just like he runs everything else from the viewpoint of his universal monarchy. He is the king over everything and everybody forever. Matter of fact, in 1 Chronicles 29, 11, it says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that's in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. There's no wiggle room there, folks. God is the king. God is the universal king. So that's the first thing we have to understand about God's kingdom. There's an aspect of it that's universal. Where he rules over everyone and everything. Eternity past, eternity future, forever. That's very basic. And sometimes when you read the term the kingdom of heaven in the Bible, that's what it's talking about. It's talking about the universal kingdom of God. Well, there's a second aspect to the kingdom of God that you have to understand if we're going to understand these parables. And the second aspect of God's kingdom is what's called, one commentator calls it, the the mediatorial kingdom. In other words, that which is mediated. It's not under the, the direct rule of God. It's mediated through some other agency. Through some other individual or individuals. And it refers specifically to God's rule on earth. It's directly referring to God's rule on earth. Now it's this kingdom, the mediated kingdom, not the universal kingdom, but the mediated kingdom that is in view in Matthew chapter 6. Remember when we went through Matthew chapter 6? What's called the Lord's Prayer. It says, pray this way, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. What's he say next? On earth as it is in heaven. Okay, right there, you see two aspects of the same kingdom. As it is in heaven relates to the universal kingdom of God. That next phrase, on earth, talks about the mediated kingdom of God. So the prayer basically is asking God to rule on earth the way that you rule everywhere else. That's what the prayer is saying. So earth somehow... And this is where you got to kind of think about this and absorb this. 
earth somehow is isolated in the midst of God's universal kingdom. And it's isolated as a point of rebellion. It's isolated as a point of rebellion. It's the only point, really, where rebellion is focused in the universe. And what that prayer in Matthew 6 is saying is, God, rule on earth as you rule everywhere else in your universe. And if he's praying for that, that means it's not being done. There's a rebellion going on against God's rule. And that rebellion exists here on earth. Now this brings us to the perspective of this mediated kingdom. This is what we want to talk about this morning. See, in God's great, glorious, universal kingdom, he rules from eternity past to eternity future. He rules over everything, everyone, forever and ever. There's this little sliver of rebellion. And when God created the world, how did he create it? He designed the world to rule on earth through who? Through human instruments, right? God created Adam and Eve. And what did he tell them? He said, go and have dominion over the earth. He expected them to rule on earth as his mediators. But unfortunately, they didn't do that. <laughs> they were, you might think of them as his, their, his sub-kings. They were out there and they were supposed to rule for him in his stead. And they fell prey to Satan, and we know the whole story. And at that point, the rebellion set in. And Satan became the god of this world. Satan became the prince of the world, the Bible says. Satan became the monarch of this world. And now he is ruling here in earth as a, you might say, a usurper. Somebody who shouldn't be, but he's here. But God then comes back and says, you know what? I still want to mediate my rule on earth, even though I'm not there physically. I still want my will to be known. I still want my word to be known. I still want my principles to, to be known. I want my moral standards to go out and to be heard. I want people to be subjects to me. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to call people into my kingdom. And he designed to do that, and he did that, and has done that from that time on. Even after... The fall, he did that. If you follow the book of Genesis, you'll see that God mediated his rule on earth through the patriarchs, through the godly men in the Old Testament who knew the mind of God, knew the will of God. You see it over and over and over. God mediated his kingdom through human agency. Talk about the Seths and the Noahs and the Abrahams and the Isaacs and the Jacobs, the Josephs, Melchizedeks, all those people were people who God mediated his kingdom through as individuals here on earth. Then God called out a nation of people who would be his human agents to mediate his rule. That nation of Israel is called, that nation is called Israel. He called them to be his chosen people. Why? Because he could. Because he's God and I'm not. That's why he did it. The same reason why he called you to be saved. You can't sit here this morning and say, well, I know why God called me to be saved. Because I can, you know, 
do this or I can do that. Or I, no. The Bible says that you were called to salvation before the foundation of the world, before you even existed. He put a call on your life. So why did he call the nation of Israel? I don't have a clue. But that's what he did. And he chose them out of all the nations of the world to be his people. And what was their rule to be? Their role in all this, they were given the word of God. And what their role was to be was to take the word of God and to give it out to other people. That's what they were supposed to do. The statutes of, the, of God, the, the principles of God, the mind of God, the heart of God. They were to call the world with the knowledge of the true God. That's what Deuteronomy 6.4 says. The God and, and God and the nation of Israel particularly called out prophets. He called out priests. He called out kings. And those were his human agents, human instruments to mediate his rule here on earth. And you have that throughout the whole Old Testament. And then you come to the New Testament. And all of a sudden, God directly gets involved in mediating his kingdom through the human instrument of Jesus Christ. He sends Jesus Christ, his son, to earth physically to be born of a, ch- a baby. And Jesus becomes a man and he be- He comes into the world in human form and he tells us what God is like and he tells us what standards are like God's and he preaches the kingdom of God and he calls people to be subject to the king and its kingdom. But unfortunately, Jesus is rejected. And after his death and burial and resurrection, he goes back to heaven and immediately the message carries goes on and is carried on by the apostles who were left here. And it's carried on by the prophets. And then the church came into being. And we continue to carry on the message of the kingdom. God is mediating his rule on earth, even now, through the believers who have trusted in the lordship of Jesus Christ and are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We are God's agents to speak the word of God, to hold up the standards of God, To bring all men to God's will, to repentance. We're here to call men to enter the kingdom of God through Christ. And there's going to be a day in the future, in the tribulation, when God will anoint, it says, 144,000 Jews. And those Jews will mediate in the sense that they will take God's message to the world. And there's going to be this worldwide revival. You can read all about it in Revelation. Like I said, so many Gentiles are going to be saved, you won't even be able to count. And the nation of Israel in its entirety will be saved. And then Christ will come back and he'll mediate his kingdom here on earth physically once again. And then that mediated kingdom ultimately will merge completely into the eternal universal kingdom, which is known as the new heavens and the new earth. And we're going to go on into eternity that way. That's just to give you a little background on the kingdom of God, the different facets of the kingdom of God. You have to understand that first before we can go any further. Well, his mediated kingdom, this kingdom on earth, which is mediated through the instruments that God chooses, a couple things about it. First of all, this kingdom will be comprised of both true and false followers of Christ. 
It will be composed of both true and false followers of the king. If you don't understand that, you're going to get very confused, even biblically, in your understanding of some of these parables. The kingdom is a term that encompasses all those who externally identify with the people of God. Notice I said externally. So you're looking at it from simply a human, earthly point of view. And as we look at the kingdom of God on earth, the mediatorial kingdom, we see this outward profession of people and an inward possession. We see that today in our churches. There's people who profess Christ. They say, yes, I'm a Christ follower. I don't live anything like Jesus, and I'm not interested in doing anything Jesus tells me, but I'm a I'm a follower. And then there are those who truly possess Christ. They've yielded their life to him. They've followed him in obedience. And they've repented of their sins. And they've been gloriously saved. And you see fruit in their life. You see them desiring to do what God wants them to do. That's an inward possession of Christ. Sometimes it's hard to tell the difference, isn't it? Sometimes we scratch our heads and we go, I don't know where, where, that, where that person's coming from. We don't always know who's real and who isn't. And that's true in the kingdom as well. You go all the way back when God began to mediate his kingdom after the fall. There were people, for example, in the nation of Israel through whom God mediated his kingdom. And there were people in the nation of Israel who weren't really true to God. We can read about that in the Old Testament. Read Romans 9. Paul says, all Israel is not Israel. (laughs) He also said, a Jew is not a Jew who is one outwardly, but is one what? Inwardly, Romans 2. And so we'll always be identified with this quote, kingdom of God, both true and false followers, subjects, if you will. Just to show you that, look at Matthew chapter 8. We went through this already, but I just want to use it to point this out to you. Matthew chapter 8 and verse 12. Look at what it says. It says, But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into utter darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, anybody that has any familiarity with Scripture in the Bible, when you talk about utter darkness and you talk about the gnashing and weeping and gnashing of teeth, what are you talking about? You're talking about hell. Okay? Well, wait wait a minute. These are sons of the kingdom. That's exactly my point. Where do they end up? They end up in a place called hell. Obviously, they were not true sons of the kingdom. They weren't true converts. So, not all sons of the kingdom are believers. Not all sons of the kingdom are true subjects of the king. And that's the whole point the Lord is going to be making. And so we see here in in Matthew 13, when he talks about growing together in the field, there's what? There's wheat and there's what? Tares. Okay? That's consistent throughout all scripture. Even when you look at John 15. Some people get really confused when they read John 15 and it begins to talk about the branches and and he says, I am the true vine and you are the branches. Now, who are the branches? Who are are they? 
what's he talking about there? Well, verse 2 tells us in John 15, every branch in me. The branches are people in Christ somehow. I don't completely understand how, but that's what it says. But then it says this. It says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, what's he do? Takes it away. What's he do with it? What do you mean he takes it away? Verse 6 tells us in John 15, it says, Men gather them, cast them into a fire, and they are burned. Take a wild guess what that describes. Hell. So it says a branch in me that doesn't bear fruit is going to be thrown into hell. And you say, well, wait a minute. Doesn't that mean that you can lose your salvation? No, not at all. You have to go back to the kingdom principle that you can have in the kingdom both true and false subjects. You can be in the kingdom and not subject to the king, apparently. You can be superficially attached. Good example when you think of the disciples. Who do you think of? Judas, superficially attached to Christ. But in the end, there was no fruit. He showed his fruit. His fruit was of the devil. So we have to keep this principle in mind as we enter into Matthew 13. Some of the sons of the kingdom and some of the branches that attach themselves are going to end up in hell because there's real, no real life there at all. There's no real subjection to the king, as it were. He's going to show us the character of the kingdom as it existed in this interim, this parenthesis period in which we live. Now, one other quick thought about this kingdom, about the universal kingdom. The universal kingdom has no conditions upon entering it. There's no conditions for entrance to the universal kingdom of God. God's universal kingdom has no conditions for entrance If you are, you're in the kingdom. Because remember we said the universal kingdom of God extends to who? Everyone, at all time, everywhere. So if you're a a being, you're in God's universal kingdom. That's all. It's everybody, everything, forever. However, God's mediatorial kingdom, it has a condition. You're not in his mediated kingdom. You're not in the kingdom where Christ rules and reigns internally. According to Mark 1.15, unless you repent, you turn from your sin and you turn to Christ and you believe in Jesus Christ and Christ alone to save you from your sin. That's the gospel. Unless you repent and believe the gospel, you can't be part of God's mediated kingdom. If you don't believe the gospel, you are not in God's mediated kingdom while you are in his universal kingdom. And because you are in his universal kingdom, you will suffer under his universal rule. And what will happen eventually, unless you come to Christ, you will be cast into utter darkness, into hell. And you will never know the blessings of heaven. So the universal kingdom has no condition for entrance. The mediatorial kingdom does. So when Jesus was coming and he says, repent and believe the kingdom is at hand... What was he asking men to come into? He was asking men to come into the the mediatorial aspect of his kingdom, the redeemed community. 
There's no room for neutrality in, in this kingdom. Either you're for Christ or you're against Christ. Either you accept him and acknowledge him as king or you reject him. There's no gray area there. And that was the thing that John the Baptist asked the Jews to decide. And that was the thing that Jesus asked them to decide. And tragically, what did they decide? They decided the wrong thing. They said, no, I'm going to refuse this offer of this king and his kingdom. And they refused it. And so he pronounced judgment on them. And at that point, the full fulfillment of the kingdom was postponed. What do I mean? Well, remember I said the full, full fulfillment of the, the kingdom is the internal rule of Christ and the external rule of Christ. Well, the internal rule of Christ could continue because Christ had followers, his disciples, others who followed him internally. They, they gave their life over to him. They repented of their sins. They became a follower of Christ. They were given the Holy Spirit. But externally, he couldn't rule here on earth because they rejected him. And so the full fulfillment will be both the internal and external during the millennial reign when Christ is here physically to rule and reign for a thousand years. And you can read about that in Revelation. It talks about him sitting on the throne of David in the literal city of Jerusalem, ruling with a rod of iron. Yes, it's a real rod of iron. And the nations being brought to Jerusalem to see him and so forth. It goes on and on. That's the real kingdom of Jesus Christ. Physically, here on earth, that will happen one day. Just read Revelation 20. But it's going to be preceded by an internal response to Christ on a worldwide basis, and particularly Israel will be saved, and all these Gentiles and everything. And so all this is going to happen. Well, when we look at chapter 13, we begin to understand that interim time. And that's where these parables come in. In verse 11 of Matthew 13, he says this, he answered and said to them after they asked him questions, he said, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. You have to understand, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, it's one and the same. Some theologians think they're two different things. They're not. When we say the kingdom of heaven, that basically means God in heaven. That's where he is, the kingdom of heaven. You're saying the same thing, the kingdom of God. And it's used over and over and over. And you can, Luke uses it the same way. One place would be called the kingdom of heaven. The next place is called the kingdom of God. And that's just to kind of keep everything straight. But this mystery that he's talking about is revealed a little further in Ephesians 3. It says, This is the mystery which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, but is now revealed to the holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles would be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of the promises of Christ in Christ by the gospel. In other words, this mysterious age, one thing that's mysterious about it is that you have both Jew and Gentile constituting the same body, the church. That's why we call this the church age. It's made up of Jew and Gentile. 
That wasn't seen in the Old Testament. People didn't understand that in the Old Testament. It was hidden from them. But the kingdom here is, is sweeping beyond all that. So kind of in the middle, don't make the mistake of saying, oh, the church age is the same as a mediated kingdom. No, I think on the back of your thing here, see, the church age is just a little section of the mediated kingdom. It's not the same. Because the church has a certain point in time where it begins and a certain point in time it ends. When the rapture happens, the church is out of here. Church age is over. But the mediated kingdom will continue. And so it's an important just thing to understand as we continue through this. Now, just in closing, so I don't have to do this next week, I just want to look at quickly verse 1. It says, on the same day, on what day? On the same day when all these miracles were happening, when everything was going on, all these things that we read about in in Matthew uh, 12, so forth. It says, the same day. Jesus went out of the house. He was in the house, but it says he went out of the house and he sat by the sea. And great multitudes were gathered together to him so that he got into the boat and he sat and the whole multitude stood on the shore. And then it goes on and he spoke many parables to him. Now remember, he's, he's in the house and at this point it says that he comes out of the house. One commentator says this is interesting because some people say, well, him being in the house means that he's speaking to Israel. And you see that in the ministry of Christ. You see it early on. He's constantly speaking to the Pharisees. He's dealing with all these people. And he's always dealing in synagogues. He's in people's houses. He's teaching in places like that. But there comes a marked time in the ministry of Christ where all of a sudden, you hardly see him in the house anymore. He's out in the fields. He's out with the people. And he's hardly around the religious leaders anymore. And this is kind of reading into the scripture, but it makes for a good understanding of what's happening here, a good illustration. Picture it this way. Christ was in the house and he's teaching Israel and he's trying to get them to believe that he's the king. They won't. They reject him. So he says, okay, you know what? I'm going out of the house. Later, I'm leaving. I'm going out to the sea. The sea designates Gentiles. He said, I'm going to go reach them. You're not going to hear me? I've got to get my message out. I'm going to go to them. I'll go to those that will hear. And that's exactly what happened in the ministry of Christ. And it's just a good picture Because it says great multitudes were gathered together. See, before he was just dealing with the religious community. But now, as you read through the gospel, you're going to see a marked contrast in the ministry of Christ. He's no longer going to be in the synagogues per se. He does occasionally, but not not as often as he has up to this point. He's going to be dealing with a different group of people. And he goes and he sits by the sea, and it says the, the multitudes were so many And you can only imagine, this is a man who came on the scene and he was healing everybody of any disease, any demon possession. I mean, people were just being healed all over the place. And as a result of that, people just flocked in around him. Came out of the house, he went by the sea, thought maybe he could teach from there. Nope, can't can't happen, all these people. So there's some boats there, because probably people are coming from everywhere to hear him teach. He gets in one of the boats and he pushes it off from the sea. You know, the water reflects his voice. He could probably speak to thousands that way. And it says he sat down on the boat. Some people said, well, why did he sit down? Probably because he didn't want to tip the boat over. I don't know. 
And then he spoke to this whole multitude. And it's going to be interesting what he has to say in the coming weeks because it really does directly relate to us as Christians, as the church. It directly relates to us. When he begins to tell these parables, these are, these are stories, these are illustrations, it's an unexplained riddle, you might say. It can't be understood unless somebody explains it. That's why he's always explaining these things. You think these guys were just dumb. No, they weren't. A parable, by definition, is something that needs an explanation. And that's why he spoke in parables to them. And at a point in time, the disciples say, why do you do this? Why are you playing this riddle game with everybody? And he says, you know what? I came to them, and basically he says, and I'll just summarize it. He says, you know, I came speaking the truth to them, and they couldn't hear it. They wouldn't hear it. I came talking simple terms to them. They rejected me. So now I'm going to talk in terms that they're not going to have any idea what I'm saying. You will, because I'll explain it to you. You will, because you have the Spirit of God. And so that's what we're going to embark on in the next several weeks as we work our way through Matthew 13. Let's close in a word of prayer. I know that was a lot to digest. It was a lot for me to give that to you, but you really had to establish this foundation before we get in to the parables. Father, we thank you for sending us your King, your Son, your Messiah, the Savior. Lord, we thank you that we can enter the kingdom through Christ, through the work of Christ on the cross. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God who, before time even began, set your love upon us. And Father, I want everyone to know in this building, even this morning, that if there's anyone here who has yet to put their faith or trust in Christ as their Lord and Savior, that they would cry out to you this morning, that they would acknowledge your kingship, that they would bow their knee, that they would desire your kingdom in their lives. That they would repent of their sin, that they would turn from their sin and turn to you, turn to the Savior, and to the Savior alone to save them. Just cry out to him. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me. That's a prayer he will answer. That's a prayer he will help you digest. That's a prayer he'll help you with. He'll hear that cry of your heart because there's nowhere else to go for salvation other than the name of Christ. And for believers, Lord, we just want to be reminded that we are here for a specific task to give that invitation of the kingdom out, to continue to give it out until you come back. Help us never fall short in our duties as ministers of your gospel to take forth the glorious life-giving gospel and share it with those who've yet to hear that they too could be transformed and be gloriously saved. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. We just pray your blessing upon the remainder of our day. And uh, pray you bless each one. In Jesus' precious name, amen.